Good morning, everyone, and thank you for being here. This has been a long journey. My involvement in this case starts right here. It's a cold Thursday morning in February of 2014. I'm a local TV news reporter in Gainesville, Florida, home of the University of Florida, and I'm standing in a crowd of a couple dozen journalists listening to the county sheriff, Sadie Darnell, at a press conference in the middle of the woods. In specifics to this case, what has happened is there was a DNA connection made. The day before this, the TV station I was reporting for at the time had gotten wind that there was going to be some huge presser on the side of a Gainesville highway that media from all over the state needed to come up for. I was brand new to Florida then, and I didn't know what everyone else at my station already seemed to know. A huge secret press conference with the sheriff's office in the woods in February, most likely meant there was news about a missing co-ed named Tiffany Sessions. Later that day, we were able to confirm that the sheriff's office was going to name a new suspect in that 25-year-old cold case. And by our 6 o'clock newscast, I had tracked down the missing college girl's dad and brother to get their thoughts on what was supposed to be a huge turning point in the case. CTN's Haley Holloway is live with Tiffany's father, Pat. Haley? Patrick Sessions has been waiting for news on his daughter's cold case for 25 years. And ASO tells us they now have a suspect as well as new leads. Patrick, what does it feel like to finally be able to put a face and a name on this case? Well, it's it's a relief. You know, after beating our head against the wall for 25 years, to have a strong suspect is, is, is great. That night, Patrick Sessions struck me as hopeful, yet a little distracted and very, very tired. And that was understandable, because by the time I was interviewing him, his daughter had been missing without a trace for more than two decades, there'd been almost no legitimate suspects, and hope of finding Tiffany alive was long gone. But every time new clues emerged, Patrick and the rest of the family had to get sucked right back in. And so there they were, the next morning, at that press conference in the woods, standing with Sheriff Darnell in front of giant construction excavators that were digging up a known burial site. And the sheriff told us they were now digging for the body of Tiffany Sessions, and they had reason to believe they finally knew who might have put her there. Paul Rolls has a horrible history of violent crimes against women, murder, rape, kidnapping. He was in this community. He murdered in this community. He was in this area at the time of Tiffany's disappearance. He worked at a business here and did not work on the day and night of her disappearance. All indicators have pointed to him. If the sheriff's office was right, If they had finally figured out who had kidnapped and murdered 20-year-old Tiffany Sessions back in 1989, Tiffany was not this guy's only victim. She wasn't his first, and she wasn't his last. And yet this Paul Rolls guy had gotten away with her murder and who knows how many more without any suspicion. He was smart. He was calculating. He was invisible. And as I stood there listening to the sheriff with my heels sinking into that wet, swampy Florida dirt, I looked around past the dozens of other reporters, past the machines raking for bones, to the acres and acres of trees that seemed to have no end. And I realized, if it was Paul Rolls who took Tiffany Sessions, she was still going to be nearly impossible to find. I'm Haley Holloway, and this is Shallow Graves.
So that 2014 press conference is where this all started for me. That's where I got hooked. But to tell this story properly, we've got to go pretty far back to where it all started for Paul Rolls. And we have to get pretty deep into his life and who he was. So we're going to start in Miami in the early 70s. And we're going to start with the neighbors. I moved in when it first opened, and I was with a roommate then, and Jim and I married and took another apartment in the same building, and that was in 71, June of 71. That's Nicole Woodard. She and her husband, James Woodard, were neighbors of Paul and Linda Rolls in a Miami apartment complex called Robin Hood. It was fairly small. We were on the first floor, fairly close to the laundry room, as I recall. About three doors down from the laundry room. And they were on the second floor. Their neighbor, Paul Rolls, was a tall, lean, handsome 23-year-old. He was an avid tennis player and a full-time college student studying drafting at Miami-Dade Junior College. He'd been married to his wife, Linda Schaefer Rolls, a 23-year-old Delta stewardess, for just over a year. But there was already a different Linda he had his eye on. Linda was like the all-American girl at that particular point. She was really well-liked. She was doing some modeling. She was also in multiple beauty contests and whatever. She was a hard worker, just a, just a sweet woman. I mean, just really a sweet person. That's Rick Fida. He and his then 20-year-old wife, Linda Fida, had also just gotten married, and they also lived at Robin Hood. But even though their apartment was catty corner from the Rolls, they had no idea Paul Rolls was watching them. In fact... They didn't even know he was there. Yeah, did you know the roles before? No, this? they moved in. Um, I think they were pretty new in the neighborhood. He was like, you came up, there was an apartment on the end. He would have been maybe the third apartment in, and we were the apartment on the end here at the steps. So you could see their apartment from my living room, but I don't think we ever really had any interaction with them at that point. I read um, from a newspaper article at the time that there were like five or six cops who lived there, two oh, yeah. newspaper reporters, a prosecutor. I would imagine right. it felt pretty safe. Well, you know, 1972, and you're 20, 21 years old, you know, safety is not something that's really at the top of your mind at that point. And that makes sense, right? Back then, most early 20-somethings weren't overly worried about their safety, and they weren't constantly watching their backs when they were at home. But Nicole Woodard had been a police officer, and James Woodard was a prosecutor at the time. So I'd say they had a pretty good feel for danger, and even they felt like Robin Hood was a safe place. It was not a high crime area, at least as far as we were concerned. It's not something that would be expected for that apartment building, but bad things happen in good neighborhoods. And though no one knew it, that good neighborhood was already home to a future killer who was honing his skills right in front of his neighbors. The people who lived at Robin Hood didn't know to watch out for Paul Rolls, nor did they know that he was watching them. So one of these kind of guys, you met him in a, in a restaurant, if he's serving tables or he's meet him on the street or something, you wouldn't think twice that he was a bad guy. He's not at all very likable very polite, as was Ted Bundy. That's Detective Marshall Frank. He was a Miami homicide detective in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And even though he's been retired for almost 30 years now, you can trust me on this. This guy's mind is like a steel trap. 
He was heavily involved in this case, and he remembers just about every tiny detail about it and about his interactions with Paul. And what he said there about Paul, that he was likable and polite, that's what I've heard from literally everyone I've talked to over the years about Paul Rolls. He came across as the most normal, vanilla, unsuspecting guy in any given room. But... He's a sick person. Paul Rolls is a very sick person. Paul had a past, and it was extremely dark and troubled and almost certainly indicative of the monster he would become. I want to read you some pieces from a psychiatric evaluation of Paul. Now, this evaluation wasn't done until 1994, but I think it's incredibly telling. The report details a very rough childhood with an alcoholic, abusive father and a mom who was in and out of mental hospitals where she was getting shock treatments. It says Paul felt depressed most of his life. It talks about a time he got caught shoplifting around age 7 or 8 and says that throughout grade school he wore glasses, was overweight, and did not make friends easily. But then it gets into Paul's very disturbed sexual history. And I have to warn you, it's really graphic. It's filled with horrific fantasies of harming women, from stabbing them in the breast or genitals to inserting a hot curling iron into their vagina. It says, quote, Since age 11 or 12, when he saw a woman in her underwear, he had sexual fantasies of raping females. At times, he stalked them, carrying a knife, but not following through with his fantasy at that time. He said that he did some peeping into windows, but denied that he ever exposed himself. He denied sex with animals, but said on one occasion, when he was age 8, he choked a female cat, but let her go before she died. He never felt as though he was in control when he was with females and never felt adequate with them. But in his fantasies, he was in control and they were not. The report goes on to say, quote, On occasion, he broke into women's apartments and took their underwear. He followed women with the idea of rape or has picked them up while hitchhiking, but denied that he raped any of them. He denied that he was ever sexually abused by anyone. On several occasions, he has tried on women's bras and panties. He denied that he ever thought of himself as a woman, but said his father told him he had feminine features and made fun of him. On one occasion, he took the brassiere and panties of his friend's mother and cut them up and then burned them. And then the report brings us back to our story in March of 72 at the Robin Hood Apartments. It has Paul's own version of what happened that night, and it says he was waiting in his apartment, standing behind his front door, watching his neighbor Linda Fida through the peephole while wearing a woman's wig and blouse. Just a couple hours before Paul Rolls found himself watching his neighbor Linda Fida through his peephole, the Fidas were having a pretty normal night together, hanging out in the Robin Hood complex, grilling steak dinners and chatting about their days. The apartments that we lived in had a large courtyard in the center of it, and in that courtyard was a swimming pool and there were barbecue pits and all that. Paul was there too, washing his car in the parking lot, watching. After dinner, it was time for Rick to go to work. He worked nights as a phone real estate salesman, and Linda had plans to do the couple's laundry and wash her hair. At that point, I think we only had one car, and Linda wanted the car that evening, so she drove me to work. The plan originally was that she was going to come back and she was going to pick me up. 
Once Rick got to work, Linda started doing their laundry, going back and forth from the complex's downstairs laundry room to their second-floor apartment. She was carrying loads of clothes up and down the stairs, and so that it was easier for her to get back in, she'd always leave the door to the apartment unlocked. She had no idea she had a neighbor watching her every move. Here's Detective Marshall Frank. She'd been watching her before that because she was an attractive girl. In the area of the apartment building where they were, he was on one end of the corner, and she was on the other end of the corner. The apartments almost faced each other. So he could look at his people on the door and get a shot of her front door and see her coming and going. He said they'd been watching her, and his wife was out of town on a flight because she was an airline hostess, and he was by himself. So the last trip she took away from the apartment to go down and wash clothes, he left his door and snuck into her door and then waited for her to come back in. The first thing Paul did was walk into the living room where Linda's white handbag was sitting on the couch. He went through it, but he didn't take anything. Instead, he went into the kitchen and picked out one of the Fida's paring knives. He said he just wanted to scare her. Paul took the knife into the bedroom and watched through the sliding glass doors until he saw Linda come out of the laundry room. As soon as he saw her heading back with her basket of clean clothes, he moved behind the bedroom door and waited. She was attacked the minute she walked through the door, holding the basket of clothes. From there, he told her to shut up, be quiet. Even though he had gotten the knife, Paul said his only intention was to rape Linda. Linda, however, had no intention of letting him. She fought him, and she screamed so loud that three neighbors in that complex ran outside, each saying they had heard a blood-curdling scream. But they couldn't figure out where the screams had come from. And while they were looking around outside, Linda was upstairs in apartment 216, struggling with Paul Rolls. They were wrestling on the floor of her bedroom. The laundry had been flung everywhere and Paul was holding it over Linda's eyes so she couldn't see who he was. There was a lot of resistance, and he kept saying that he put his hands on her neck to stop her from screaming so much. When Linda was finally able to push the clothes off her face, she looked right into the eyes of her neighbor. And that's when Paul Rolls snapped. He was pretty, pretty rough with her, and he strangled her. Paul strangled Linda to death, took off her jumpsuit, and tried to rape her. And then, according to the police report, he couldn't get aroused, and so he started stabbing her with the paring knife. He stabbed her in the breast twice, forcefully enough to bend the knife. And then he went and got a couple of knives from the kitchen, and these were the butter knives, not the sharp knives, okay? And he started stabbing her in the chest, and she was already dead. And from there, he dragged her into the bathtub naked, and then put her in the tub full of water, so she was submerged on the very brim. And the question then was, why did you do that? And he said, just to make sure she was dead. Paul held Linda's head under the water for about five minutes. And from a couple of police reports I've read, it seems as though he then threw up into the tub because vomit was found in the water and Linda was dead before she was put in it. After that, Paul took one of the blue floral bath towels hanging in the fetus bathroom and wiped all of his fingerprints from their apartment. He got all four of the knives he had used, Linda's wallet because he thought his prints were on it, and the blue towel, and he just left her there, naked, dead in the bathtub with his vomit, clean laundry stained with blood and thrown all over the apartment, door unlocked, all for her husband to find. Now, Paul was clearly trying to cover his tracks here because he took his bundle of evidence, went across the hall to his apartment where he changed out of that woman's wig and blouse, 
He later said he burned his clothes, and then he got in his car and raced to a friend's house. He tossed all the evidence in a field on the way and then roared into his friend Don's driveway. Don would later tell police that Paul always called before coming over, but hadn't that time, and Don thought that was weird. Don also told police Paul had pulled up at, quote, an excessive rate of speed, which was also uncharacteristic of Paul. Now, Paul was only at Don's house for 30 minutes or so, long enough to establish an alibi, and then he went home. But while all of this had been happening, Rick Fida was stuck at work, and he'd been trying to call his wife the whole night with no answer. Couldn't get a hold of her and, and never got any response throughout the evening. Later on, when we finished for the night, and I obviously needed a ride home, Bernard, who was one of the owners, brought me home. I'm sure you were worried calling your wife and not being able to get Yeah, I was worried, but, you know, back in those days, it's not like you would be worried today. Plus, you're younger and you're, you're so much more naive. So, you know, I figured either she was out and about. We didn't have cell phones then. We didn't have pagers. We didn't have any of that technology. So, you know, she wanted the car because she had some errands to run, and I thought possibly that was why I couldn't get a hold of her. So the last thing you were expecting is... Oh, yeah, in my wildest imagination. I mean, I wouldn't expect to come home and find that. So uh, Bernie dropped me off, and I just went up to the apartment and walked in, and, and I discovered her. That image is obviously still burning my mind. That's pretty devastating. She had a wash rag in her mouth, and I mean, it, it just it wasn't a very good scene. Your immediate reaction was to, to try and drain the tub because I was concerned about her drowning, but she was already dead at that point. So that's what you try and do is you try and provide some comfort and you realize that there's nothing you can do. Rick called the police and detectives showed up to a horrible crime scene with no prints, no murder weapon, and no suspect. So they started going door to door. I talked to James and Nicole Woodard about what they recall from that night because, remember, not only did they live in the Robin Hood complex, but Nicole was a former police officer and James was an assistant state attorney. And because of that, their apartment was about to become the headquarters for this murder investigation. They were doing an apartment canvas the night of the murder. It was in the morning, mm -hmm. one in the morning. Yeah, they knocked on the door. He went to the door and uh, came back and said there's been a murder and he got dressed and went up to the apartment. So when he came back, I said, who is it? Anybody we know? And he said, a Linda Fita. And I said, who? Mm. Linda? You don't expect it to be somebody you know. Well, it was pretty obvious what happened. I mean, she was dead in the tub, nude, and obviously a victim of a sex assault. So that part of it was pretty clear from the beginning, but we had no idea who did it. So I'm going to put that there. I'm not going anywhere. Okay. There's one more character I want to introduce you to in this episode. What did you go by professionally? Mr. Blumenfeld? Jack? Oh, don't call me Mr. Blumenfeld. Do you go Jack. by Jack? Sure. Okay. And what was your title when you were... I was an assistant state attorney in the major crimes division. Jack Blumenfeld was the guy on call for the state attorney's office the night of the murder. He went on to work as a prosecutor and then defense attorney for almost five decades, but he told me he remembers the details of this case more than almost any other in his career. It's been 48 years since that night, but for Jack, 
It might as well have been last night. When you talk to people involved in the case, it never goes away. I could be telling you about something that occurred yesterday evening, and it wouldn't have been any clearer than this. Jack told me that just like James and Nicole Woodard, he was woken up in the middle of the night and told to head to the fetus apartment at Robin Hood. He was supposed to help Detective Frank and the other officers on a homicide investigation where, oh by the way, there are no prints and no suspects. It was our practice at the time on most homicides that the on-call assistant state attorney would respond to the scene. You want to see things yourself, know what's going on, if they're needed a search warrant in the middle of the night to draw it up, find the judge to sign it. So I got the call. We got there, we went to the apartment. She was still in the tub when I got there. Basically, Marshall just gave me a, a run-through. Essentially, this is what happened. Okay, this is what we have. And I remember standing outside the bathroom when they removed her body. And that is when investigators found Paul's one and only mistake, and the only thing he left behind. It just was, it was a break. It was just there. And the water was out of the tub. And then the medical examiner removed the body, and it was there. A band-aid. But a big band-aid, and there's a print. Okay, just to make sure we're all tracking here, the tub had been drained, the medical examiner took Linda's body out of the tub, and underneath her was the only clue in the entire apartment, a round white bandage. And even with the naked eye, you could see a print, the only print that hadn't been erased. Apparently it come off Paul's toe when he put the body in. The band-aid was in the small of her back which, as you know, is a little concave, I guess it is. So it kind of formed an air pocket, and that's why it was dry. And then another one was found in her bedroom. Now, don't picture some Johnson & Johnson out-of-a-box band-aids here, because these were clearly some kind of homemade makeshift bandages. A little bit of gauze and some white medical tape, and only one of them, the one from the tub, seemed to have a print they might be able to work with. But it was also the only thing they had to work with. I found a quote from James Woodard in a newspaper article from the time. And when he was shown the band-aids, he said, quote, Find a man with two sore toes and you'll have your likely killer. Here's Detective Marshall Frank. All this stuff was carefully brought downtown and analyzed. And we came to the conclusion that it was very likely that the suspect was barefoot. Because somebody just didn't pull him to the driveway and just walk up there and kill someone. So it had to be somebody that belonged to the apartment complex. And so the next thing we would want to do is find out if this toe print or this ridge pattern was identifiable. And according to one of our favorite experts, he said, yeah, he, if he gets a, a good match, he can make an identification. So that's all we needed to know. Again, it was also all they had. The killer had taken all other evidence out of the apartment with him. There were no eyewitnesses and no clues left behind other than these two bandages with one toe print. So as the investigation continued the next day, the detectives were pretty much only focused on the toes of the neighbors at Robin Hood. So the question next was, how do we go around the whole uh, apartment complex and find everybody's toe prints? You know, you don't normally walk up to somebody and say, hello, my name is Detective Frank, and I see your toe prints, please. It doesn't work that way. But the investigators would catch another break. 
The Fida's apartment had been fully processed, secured, and locked up when one of their neighbors heard noises coming from inside. She was scared the killer had come back, and so she ran to the Woodard's apartment for help. Lois Morgan came to the apartment because she remembered us and his connection with the state attorney's office. She was concerned, wanted to know who it was. James told Lois he'd go check it out, and she said she and her roommate would wait at their neighbor's apartment to be safe. So James Woodard went up to the Fida's apartment to see what was going on, and he found a detective there with Rick Fida, who was just getting clothes for his wife's funeral. Seeing that everything was okay, James then went to find Lois, the worried neighbor, to let her know the killer wasn't back. At least, not back in the Fida's apartment. Just coincidentally, she had gone to the Rolls apartment as safe haven. Retrospectively, not a bright idea, but nevertheless, Paul answered the door and he had his toes exposed and both of his toes had bandages on the toes that matched what I had seen in the apartment the night before. James had found his man with two sore toes right next to the murder scene. He tried his best to play it cool. He told Lois everything was fine at the Fetus apartment, and then he told Detective Frank what he had seen. Now, to me, that sounds like it should have been a closed case right there. They find these weird bandages at a murder scene where there's no other evidence, and then they find the victim's next-door neighbor wearing the same kind of bandages on his toes. So get his prints and throw him in jail, right? Wrong. These detectives were thinking about evidence and making sure they had proof that could be held up in court. Because if they messed up the way they got their new suspect's toe prints, the prints could be thrown out altogether and they'd be left with literally zero evidence. And if Paul didn't give his consent, if he said no to voluntarily giving them his prints, they were in big trouble. So the detectives and prosecutors all sat down together to strategize. They agreed Paul was their prime suspect. But without a toe print match, they didn't feel like they had probable cause for an arrest. So Detective Frank asked Jack Blumenfeld to write up a search warrant to search Paul's toes. I wouldn't give him a search warrant. They wanted a search warrant, and under the law at that time, I said, Marshal, I said, you can't do it. And one of the other assistants gave him a search warrant. So when we went to do it, I said, listen, try to get a consent. So we don't have to use the search warrant. I don't want to lose the evidence if, if I'm right. So Marshall, being one of the great detectives of all time, said, we're going to ask him for consent when his wife is there. Because how is he going to say no? And she's going to say, well, if you didn't do anything, why wouldn't you do that? So it was kind of in the back pocket. Just in case he said no. Yeah. But he was, how could he say no? In front of his wife. In front of his wife. So with a questionable toe search warrant as a backup plan, the detectives went back to the Rolls apartment to try and convince Paul to willingly give his toe prints. We knocked on the door, and this tall, blonde-haired fellow, kind of longish hair, not real long hair, but kind of like the Beatles hair, nice-looking guy, answers the door, and he has his lady friend with him, it turns out to be his wife, and so what, what's the problem? And we showed her ID, and so we know there's been a terrible thing here that happened, and we're just asking questions about who was home. Did anybody see anything? And naturally, while we're doing this, we're we're scoping this guy out. And sure enough, he's wearing flip-flops, and he has a Band-Aid on each of his big toes. Wow. Is that when you knew? 
Yeah. Detective Frank told Paul and his wife that they had found some footprint evidence in the victim's apartment, and so they were getting toe prints from everyone in the building. These were just elimination prints, so they could cross the neighbors off the suspect list. She was actually more inquisitive than him. She was the one that was like, what is this all about? What are you, what are you doing this? You know, we, we had to answer her questions. He, he was kind of quiet. According to the police report, Paul did ask what might happen if he did not agree to give his prints, but Detective Frank's plan of having Paul's wife there worked like a charm, and Paul agreed to give his toe prints willingly. I asked him why he wore band-aids on his toes, and it turns out he was an avid tennis player. From what I hear, it was pretty good, and his toes got ugly from being bruised, mm. so, so his toenails turned purple. So he, he just put band-aids on him because he was embarrassed by it. So got our ID tech to go in there, and, and we asked him, would you, you know, take off your Band-Aids, please? We have to uh, take your print, and he did so, maybe somewhat reluctantly, and uh, we got his prints, both both toes, both big toes, and uh, we walked out as, as though we were going to go to the next door, and then the next door, and the next door, which is not true. What we did was we went directly to where the fingerprint expert was at the prosecutor's department and, and gave them the fresh inked toe print. Everyone was downstairs at the Woodard's apartment. Again, it had become a kind of headquarters for the investigation. It was the detectives, prosecutors, and the fingerprint expert, now toe print expert, who already had the bandage print comparison ready to go. So now they were just waiting to see if Paul's print was a match. The theme from Jeopardy should have been playing. Dun, dun, dun. And watching the ID guy going from what's called a plastic print to the sample that they just... And then he said, that's your guy. And I'm telling you, it's like a scene you don't ever forget. They had a match. Jack felt like everything had been done by the book, and more importantly, like the evidence would all stand up in court. So he gave the go-ahead for an arrest, and Detective Frank and his partner went upstairs to the Rolls apartment, told Paul he was under arrest for first-degree murder, read him his rights, and put him in cuffs, with his wife Linda protesting the whole time. He was not resistant, hardly at all. She was angry at us. She, she thought we had made a big mistake and we shouldn't be doing this and all this stuff. And uh, she was kind of a little threatening to us. Was he uh, saying anything? Did he react when you uh, arrested uh, him? No, not very much. He, he was he was strangely quiet, okay? He wasn't outraged. There was no emotions. It was, it was almost as though, well, I guess he got me, the kind of thing. When Rick Fida found out that the detectives had not only made an arrest, but that the suspect was his neighbor, and they had solved the case with a Band-Aid, he couldn't believe it. What do you think when they come tell you your next-door neighbor killed your wife? Well, you know, I mean, what can you think? I mean, it just, you're kind of dumbfounded. When they told you it was him, were you like, Paul who? Pretty much so, yeah, exactly. I mean, I had no idea who the guy was. I don't think I ever really saw him. Detective Frank and his partner drove Paul downtown to police headquarters, where they put him in a room for interrogation. Jack Blumenfeld and James and Nicole Woodard followed them and then listened outside the door. The thing that impressed me in the confession was one of my opinions of Detective Frank from the time that I've known him is that he's probably the best homicide detective I know of, and more importantly, one of the best interrogators that I've ever met. He was cooperative. He was, you 
confessed and told it all to you how was his behavior what did he act like what were his emotions he, he was re- he was sedate he was relaxed it was like he knew that he was caught and he was going to go to prison and jail and he was not surprised did he feel bad at all or remorseful no i didn't i didn't sense any of that either not surprised because sociopaths are not remorseful not, not in truth they, they might say so they might say i'm sorry but so he had uh, no emotions. No emotions. It was almost as though, like, oh, he got me. I'll tell you what happened. They're like, yeah, I was speeding. Yeah, 20 miles over the limit. I'm sorry. That casual. And, yeah. And he was a likable guy. He wasn't physical. He, he didn't resist anything. He, he was just, he got caught. That was it. Did he ever deny that he was the one who had murdered Linda? No. Serial killers, they're either very mentally ill and... They live in the bushes, you know, or other ones are extremely intelligent, like Ted Bundy and Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber in yeah. California. Mm-hmm. He had a doctor's degree from Harvard or right. something, you know, but the common denominator of all these are sociopath, the inability to feel remorse mm-hmm. and no, no feelings of guilt. They have feelings of legal guilt, as you why they cover their tracks. But mm-hmm. uh, other than that, they don't, they don't feel bad for the dead person. And that was evident with Paul from Yeah, yeah. And I did ask him if he had done this before, and I asked him about his, his urges, if he had thoughts of doing this before, and he admitted that he did. Remember those passages I read you from Paul's 1994 psych evaluation? The ones about following girls and wanting to rape or kill them? He was blubbering it all out to police as early as 1972. I said, have you ever had these urges before? He said, yes. And he described a couple of occasions where he followed women into a, like an apartment building. Interesting, this one was where he said he followed this one young woman into the building, and she was alone, he was alone, and he, he followed her right into the elevator. And he was going to do something then. But she looked at him with some kind of air of confidence, like she was totally unafraid. And she confronted him and said something like, how are you today? Something mm-hmm. that he didn't expect. He got off on her fear angle, mm-hmm. and she wasn't afraid of anything. So he said, when they're not afraid, it just turned me off. And he, he said they had other times when he was going to attack somebody, and another time was somebody had walked up or there was a witness or something. It, it, it kind of ruined the moment. And he left the scene, and he just didn't follow through. And that girl, whoever it was, lived. Since Jack Blumenfeld was one of the prosecutors involved in the case, he not only listened outside the door of the interrogation room that night, but he'd also had to read through Paul's confession over and over again afterward to get the case ready for a grand jury. After hearing and reading his confession, you want to take a shower. Sniffing ladies' panties on clotheslines and the sexual frustration, his confession was basically two or three chapters of an abnormal psychology textbook. When you're going through all of that and putting your case together, did you think you had him? Oh, yeah. No question? No question. No Because question. the prints match, and he confessed. And he confessed. Okay. And it was as voluntary a confession as there ever been. 
But getting Paul what Jack thought he deserved, the death penalty, wouldn't be as easy as he'd expected. Because even though the killer had already confessed and the prosecutors had evidence to back it up, Paul was about to get really lucky and a really good attorney. It was clear that even though there was a confession in the toe prints, there was going to be a trial because I wouldn't waive the death penalty. They, I just couldn't waive the death penalty for that. He was represented by Bob Joseph, who is, was and still is um, one of the more prominent lawyers. He, from the get-go, asked me, can we plead for life? And I said, no, I can't waive the death penalty. I never get permission. Uh, it's going to be up to a jury. This is pretty horrible. So Jack pushed for the death penalty and got a grand jury to indict Paul Rolls for first-degree murder. And then Jack and his team were getting everything ready for the trial when Paul and his team made a really weird move. They filed what's called a motion to suppress to try and keep Paul's confession out of the trial. They were trying to convince the judge that his confession had been gotten in an unconstitutional way, that it was involuntary because he had been coerced. Now, usually that kind of argument stems from someone threatening the defendant into confessing or making promises to go easy on the defendant if they confess or even not reading the Miranda rights. But since Detective Frank and Jack had been so careful, Paul's attorney had to get a little more creative than that. Were you surprised when they made the motion to suppress? Yeah, yeah. I haven't... I practice, I just retired months ago after 51 years of practice. It's the only one of its kind I ever saw. I never heard, I've never heard anybody complaining because the detective was too nice. So yeah, I was surprised. I want to stop here and make sure you caught that. According to Jack, Paul's attorney was arguing that Detective Frank had been too nice to Paul, and that was the only reason Paul confessed to the murder. Jack says they had a whole hearing on this motion to suppress, and the defense brought in a psychiatrist to testify on Paul's initial confession. That hearing was bizarre because I asked the psychiatrist on cross-examination, are you saying that if Sergeant Frank had threatened him, beat him, intimidated him, tried to coerce him, he wouldn't have confessed? He said, that's right. Jack says Linda Rolls also testified at the hearing about the way Detective Frank had gotten Paul's toe prints. Because remember, if the defense could call into question the way the detectives had gotten them, the toe print evidence could be thrown out altogether. So that was the strategy. Get rid of the toe print evidence and the confession, and you leave the prosecutors with nothing. The toe prints were strong, and the confession, but if something was wrong in the apartment and the way we got the toe prints was wrong, and they eliminate the toe prints, they could have made an argument that there was no probable cause to arrest him in the first place, and then the confession would have gone on that. So what was said in the apartment to get him to do that was key, and that's why the tenor of her testimony was Marshall's lying, it didn't happen that way, and it was coerced, the toe prints were coerced. Detective Frank testified. He obviously said the opposite of what Linda Rolls had said, and he walked the court through how they had gotten the toe prints. And then the defense made another really weird move. They put Paul on the stand, and Jack says he basically confessed again. You can testify in the motion of suppress hearing, and it couldn't be introduced against you at the trial. That was the law. And Paul testified. And I remember Bob 
Joseph saying, now, you heard Sergeant Frank's testimony? And Paul said, yes, I did. And Bob said, do you have any corrections? There was anything that, you, that he was wrong about? And Paul said, something that he left out that he said um, he didn't mention here. And what was that? And Paul said, Sergeant Frank said to me, Paul, you know you did it, I know you did it, you know I know you did it. And Bob asked him, and did you know you did it? And Paul said, yes. And he started asking another question, and Judge Crawford, Grady Crawford said, wait a minute, wait a minute, hold on a second. Madam Court Reporter, would you read that last question and answer? I didn't hear it right. I thought he just said he did it. Aren't we wasting our time here? And I said, no, Judge, because that can't be used at trial. Jack says the judge denied the defense's motion to suppress. The detectives had done everything by the book, and Paul's confession and toe print evidence would stand. It was time to get ready for trial, and the prosecution was still pushing for the death penalty, but around this time, a huge case out of Georgia had made it to the Supreme Court, and the results changed everything. Wasn't the only reason he wasn't put to death because the law changed? That's what saved him. Three months after Paul Rolls murdered Linda Fita, the Supreme Court ruled the death penalty unconstitutional in Furman v. Georgia. That meant it was temporarily off the table for the entire country, and so it was off the table for Paul. So we had no death penalty. And then I assumed we were going to go to trial because he had nothing to lose then. He pled guilty, he was going to get life and all that. But after the Supreme Court ruling, Jack says Paul's lawyer, Robert Josephsburg, came to him with a kind of surprising offer. Instead of going through a trial, Paul would just plead guilty for a life sentence and a stint in a program for sex offenders in the prisons called MDSO. That stood for Mentally Disordered Sex Offenders. It, it didn't seem that there was any logical reason to plead guilty and not go to trial and roll the dice one in 10 million chances. But I think that the anticipation was that ultimately he would get out of prison. I reached out to Robert Josephsburg several times while I was working on this podcast, and I've never gotten a response. But Jack feels like Paul's attorney was thinking about the community here. He thinks Mr. Josephsburg expected Paul Rolls to be back amongst us one day, since life sentences back then were not really life sentences. And if Paul could go through the MDSO program and get help, maybe when he was brought back into society, he'd be a different person and less of a threat. I'm sort of like, why just send him in for life? We know he's going to get out, at least let him go through the program. And I said, I will agree to recommend the program. You know, but it's part of a life sentence. And that's what happened. Paul was sentenced to life, although he wouldn't be in a regular prison until he went through the MDSO program. And this is the first episode of a podcast about a serial killer, so you know what's going to happen here. He's going to get out. And it's all a massive alternative from an almost certain spot in an electric chair. Oh, I was probably pretty lost for a while. You know, my life was pretty much hijacked at that point in my life, so. The thing that when I look back on it right now, Linda, not that she was a chemist at that point, but you never know, she could have grown up and become a chemist and cured cancer. So you just don't know what could have been. Did you ever think you would hear about Paul Rolls again? No, 
No, no, I thought it was a done deal. I thought, you know, he was convicted of murder and uh, he went away and that was it. So, foolish me. To me, Paul Rowe's life was a plane crash. You know, they say it's not one big thing or mistake that happens and causes a plane to crash. It's a bunch of small things that have to go wrong. And in hindsight, there was no one big thing that happened and made Paul a serial killer. There were a hundred smaller things that happened that allowed him to continue to murder and ruin lives, and this twist of fate was one of them. But serial killing wasn't something people were watching out for back then. You know, most people hadn't even heard the term serial killer. And when it came to the killers themselves, we just didn't know the things we know today. Thinking back, and this is retrospective, Paul looked kind of as charming as Ted Bundy. I've heard that a lot, that <laughs> yeah. comparison. Sat across, almost as close as I'm sitting to you from Paul, and I've been that close to Ted Bundy. And with Ted Bundy, you knew the devil was in the room. But with Paul, he was just had some sort of charm that must come out of the mental disturbance that causes people to do what the two of them did. I mean, this was just a sick individual, and maybe it's a preview of what was to come. Who knew that I was looking at Junior Bundy. And Junior Bundy was just getting started. All of a sudden, about nine o'clock, the phone rang and the person on the other end said, hi, this is Kathy Sue, and I think we have a problem. Tiffy went out for a walk and hasn't come back. And I went, oh no. On the next episode of Shallow Graves. Hello, I'm Jeb Bush. Tiffany Sessions was abducted in Florida and is believed to have been taken out of the state. You crossed 75 on Wilston and you were in the woods. And I thought to myself, oh my God, if something's happened here, how will we ever find her? We had nothing to go on. I mean, she was here one day, she went out for a jog, and she's gone. Basically, we had nothing, nothing to go with. They told me they couldn't do a search because they didn't have the equipment. And I said, I don't care whether you do it or not. I said, just get out of my way. Make sure to subscribe to Shallow Graves so you get the next episode. And in the meantime, I want to hear from you. I have a voicemail set up so you can call me and leave a message with any thoughts or questions you have about the podcast. And I might play it later this season. The number is 352-559-5007. You can also reach me through my Instagram or Facebook page at Haley Holloway or shoot me an email at shallowgravespodcast at gmail.com. I want to say a huge thank you to Jessica McGill and Jillian Taylor for being my fresh ears and to my husband, Michael Spencer, for listening to this episode no less than 24 times. Thanks. Music for this podcast is by Mark at Lineout Studios and audio restoration is by Aston Lopez.